Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 86. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Handsome Joe is back. Woo, handsome Joe. Feeling fresh after the weekend? I'm feeling very fresh after Dan's lovely stag do. We're, uh, what, two days ago now? Yeah. Sweated out all the alcohol. I know, gosh. You, You know what? You know you get to that age when, like... It takes about three days to get over a night out. Although that said, I think you guys are actually pretty fair. You're actually pretty decent. You, I, yeah. I thought you were going to go all out and I was going to be like, you know, lying in a gutter or something at like four o'clock in the morning. Well, it, interesting you should say that. So just to kind of paint the picture, around about three o'clock in the day. Three, 3 p.m. 3 p.m. that is. Dan was begging me to finish his pints because he was so <laughs> blackout drunk. Little did he know Don't that, announce that, that there was uh, shots of vodka going into his pints, which is very, very funny. So... Six, I can't do shots. No. Never can. Literally, shots come back out like two seconds after you, you, I do them. You powered through and you made it to the end of the night. Because I was quite nice to you in your stag do earlier on this year, wasn't I? You were very nice to me, actually. But then my mate Paul, who came out as well, now he got married about three years ago and I was his best man. And I remember I must have made him do... I was going to the bar staff on his stag do and saying, give me your nastiest shot and give it to the... <laughs> there you go. To so it's a revenge. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. he kind of got his revenge on me a little bit. But yeah. um, what I didn't expect to be doing the next morning with a rather banging hangover, I've got to admit, <laughs> is wandering around a pretty cool game shop that we came across in Leeds. Yeah, so we kind of went retro game hunting, yeah. uh, which was quite funny. You know, you, you know, we live for the retro. And what was the name of the shop, Ravi? Oh, it was... Cash to Convert? Convert to Cash. Convert to is cash. it in Leeds? Um, it's quite a nice shop. It was insane. You found CDI games. And <laughs> yeah. there was like so many different systems there. They had old Atari like cartridges in the cases. Mm. I don't usually see them in the cases. Yeah, Loose, some, you know. Some interesting finds in there, you know. Uh, massive NES collection. Uh, massive Game Gear collection as well. So usually when you kind of see these retro shops, it's all Mega Drive and SNES. But like you say, there was a lot of CDI really interesting shop yeah I think I came away with about eight CDI titles yeah you got Wayne's World didn't you (laughs) (laughs) that's cool we can't go to a city without looking at the retro stores absolutely I think Alone in the Dark though which you know is a pretty good game oh did you Uh, oh I didn't know that only about five quid each as well I think the find of the day had to go to you Mr Abbott yeah, I found a, a Honeybee controller, which is the uh, famous one for the uh, Amiga, which is about £100, and that was nine quid. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, also Speedball 2, which is for CD32, which is usually a high price tag. That was also nine quid. So I was just looking yeah. around here, Ravi, and I heard... Well, what got me, I didn't know what was going on. I was looking at the NES games, and Ravi's buying some stuff at the till, and like Dan looks really stern, and he's like talking out of the side of his mouth, like, that's a really expensive piece of equipment right there. Like, and I'm like, what? And Ravi's just like, how much for the Mega Drive controller, mate? Yeah, pretending it's a Mega Drive pad. Wow, well, it's, it, you know, if, if you find a bargain, it's hard to find these days, isn't it? So it's you've got to go well, for it. It said Mega Drive on it, on the, on, you know, on the plastic yeah, it was, bag. Yeah, it, it was so. just dumped in with a load of Mega Drive, but I saw so. that little CD32 logo, yeah. and that was all the difference. No, good, very good find there. Very you, good though, find. got rumbled, didn't you, when you looked on eBay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Yeah. What was that for? Uh, I've already got it. It was Zombies, Zombies Ate Your Neighbours. I've got yeah. it for SNES and Mega Drive, one of my favourite games of all time. And there was a loose cartridge in with all the sports games, which were, like, £2. And I was like, let me just kind of test the water. And I took it over, and he was like, where'd you get it from? And I was like, that shelf. And he was like, oh, okay. And then he goes on eBay and he goes, I'm not going to be funny, mate, but I'm going to have a quick look on eBay. And I'm like, oh, what? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of annoying when stores do that nowadays. But, you know, they've they've got to see the market, haven't they? Yeah. Well, you scored yourself about 150 quid worth of stuff for about a tenner. So you you did well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Probably spent that much on drink. but (laughs) Yeah, very true. Exactly. So it was a top weekend. And then, uh, obviously, you know, first show of September now, isn't it? Looking yeah. outside, you know, it's uh, getting dark already, 8 o'clock in the evening. My wedding in about a month, and then, I mean, this show's second birthday will be coming up as well. Oh, God. Stop planning the Christmas we'll quiz. We'll have to get a cake. <laughs> yeah, no, we will. Now, before we get into the show, and obviously, you know, the second birthday's coming up, we wouldn't be able to get this far without the people who show their kind support to the Retro Hour podcast every single week and make a donation in to the Hall of Fame. Now, if you haven't heard about this before, we've got a little tip jar on our website. That's all it is. You know, if you enjoy the show every week and you want to help us keep it running and help us with the cost of doing it, because doing a weekly retro gaming podcast, it ain't cheap. And we've got some of the big events coming up soon as well. So if you want to make a donation, all you've got to do is nip onto our website, theretrohour.com. You can do that on PayPal or Bitcoin. And this week, we want to say thank you so much for your support, Simon Pilgrim. Northeast Horizons. 
Warren Jenkins and Colin Walker who all made donations into the running of the show thank you so much guys and could I just mention one thing as well um on the site, there's a few people putting comments saying, this is the Bitcoin wallet. I am deleting those spam ones and just go for the official Bitcoin co- uh, wallet on the site. People trying Rather to rip than, off our audience. Yeah, you know, Ooh. anything with Bitcoin, Goodness they're going to try and do little sneaky things. Mess with us, but not our audience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of our audience as well, they've been getting in touch. Oh, yeah, oh. paper section. The bit I get excited about. I'm going to hand these out. I like to wait until like we do the bit before you see the pictures. So. Is this is this yeah. the birthday cards? <laughs> you said this before. It's like, it's mil- like play milkshake, days. Milkshake, milkshake on Channel 5. Five. Is, yeah. it, what, is it a machine gun down. this time? <laughs> no, it, it's, it's a bit more tight this week. Now, obviously, there was an eclipse in America last week. Oh, yeah. Uh, we didn't really see much of it from here, did we? No, I heard um, a lot about it, and I saw kind of, you know, everybody online. This is then outrageous. We... <laughs> Dear Dan and Ravi... Look at this diva here. Come, comes, comes on once every six months. <laughs> well, this is uh, from Andy Craig, our first letter. He goes, hey, guys, this is during the solar eclipse in Atlanta. Uh, the gaps in the trees above from pinhole lenses, rendering the eclipse on the hood of my old Chevy. Now, it's a secondary car and quite tatty, collecting tree sap, but it served its purpose today. And looks like he's listening to the retro hour while essentially waiting for the eclipse to come over. With That's a cute cool. episode on his phone. And wasn't this eclipse like once every 50 years or something? It was a, a massive time period. Well, yeah, they don't them. come around very often. Do you remember? We had one here in 1999. I remember that one, yeah. Did Because yeah. I didn't live in Nottingham then. Did you see much of it here? Uh, I remember, yeah, I remember seeing it. But at the time, we lived kind of out in the country. Yeah. And uh, I remember seeing it. I remember it quite well. Yeah, I was on a canal boat and we had those little glasses from the newspaper. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah we had the glasses from the newspaper yeah. as well, yeah. I think then that I was actually really up north, like Northumberland, and we were waiting for it and it just went a bit cloudy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of an anticlimax. Look, coolest one in America though, and obviously yeah, Andy was there watching it. And he goes, thank you guys for your hard work and making great shows. This bit here got me thinking of like, what? He goes, I haven't heard Dan's robot voice lately. So feel free to let it fly. It was a great laugh in the earlier episodes. Did I have a robot voice? I think maybe a bit of processing may have turned you slightly robotic at some point. Um, I don't recall this. This is Dan Wood. (laughs) I might have just been hungover, I'm afraid, Andy. So uh, apologies. I don't remember what it was. I'll do it again. (laughs) We had a robot voice at the um, talk-in play, didn't we? Did we? For one second, yeah. You were asking a question and you suddenly sound like a Dalek. If he's referring to that, he's, he's, he's a big fan. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for your letter. Thanks for getting in touch. And uh, Raymond Montalban, he's next. He goes, hey, boys, you two always refer to... Sorry, Joe, you three. <laughs> always refer to how much retro is in vogue at the moment, and it seems it is a global phenomenon. Now, there's a place called 1982. Sounds like it's the name of a cafe or a bar. Mm. On King Street near University of Sydney in Newtown, Sydney, Australia. Essentially, this place, if you look at the next page, he sent a picture here. Wall-to-wall 80s and 90s memories. All-style arcade machines, board games. There's even an authentic RSI-inducing arcade version of Teenage Mutant Mutant Ninja Turtles, complete with a joystick for that Leonardo that only sends left, right and up. Down didn't work. (laughs) That that place looks so cool. Like, the wall is also made up of kind of comics and, you know... Old school art and maybe game covers as well. And there's a Simpsons arcade there as well, yeah, isn't there? I, I, yeah. was, I was literally just looking at that. This looks like a sick little bar. It does, yeah. And it's like, it's always those machines I remember, you know, when you go to the seaside when you were a kid. Yeah. They were quite similar, those two arcades, really, weren't they? They were like both four player games and you yeah. could get like all the family around them. Absolutely, but, yeah. Yeah, classics. And our last one this week is from Philip Stiff. He goes, hey guys, I've been a listener to your podcast and various YouTube videos for just over a year now. Uh, He's from Winnipeg in Canada. He mentioned he'd like to see pictures of listeners' retro setups. Now, he's got loads in his setup Mm. here. He sent like about two pages worth of pictures. Um, Everything in there from the Wii, Wii U, PS2, 3, 4, N64, Dreamcast... Uh, various versions of the DS, Game Boy, 3DS, portables. And his uh, Wii's actually packed with emulators, so he runs a lot of the um, old games off a USB drive. i kind of noticing he's got a big external hard drive there. Yeah. So, so yeah, he can probably run the GameCube games or other cool stuff on that. And his Dreamcast looks very white, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mine's not that white. Yeah, mine's it's... like a uh, yeah, rotten teeth colour, mine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very impressive. Playing Castlevania Bloodlines is there. Nice one, mate. <laughs> and uh, Philip was actually in the UK for the first time recently and he had a trip to Nottingham. He oh, should have hooked us up. And he said um, he visited the National Video Game Arcade when he was here. First time he'd seen all those European consoles in real life. He'd only seen the um, you know, SNES and Mega Drive and Spectrum in magazines growing up and it was nice to see them in uh, in person. So... 
There you go. Oh, he enjoyed the Robin nice. Hood statue as well. Oh, excellent, yeah. <laughs> so glad you had a good trip, Philip. Thank you for getting in touch. And if you'd like to do the same, all you've got to do is drop us an email, show at theretrohour.com, and we'll give you a mention on next week's show. Now, every week on this show, we go through the big stories that have been making the headlines in the world of retro, and then, in part two, we welcome on a very special guest. Now, I know a lot of our audience are like, you know, Amiga fans. We do get a lot of those getting in touch, and obviously the Atari ST massive system. And the thing about those machines is they weren't like the consoles because you could actually make your own games on them. They were proper computers. Yeah, mm. but it was, it was, it was kind of hard to make games as well because you'd have to go down to the level of binary or assembly language, which was, you know, really advanced. And, Dev pack uh, and all that, yeah. Yeah, so we have a guest who made STOS and AMOS, which are just fantastic programs to help create games, create any kind of software, really. But simply, you know, it, it reduces the commands mm-hmm. down to a simple set because i mean there was basic on the amiga i remember and that was dreadful it was like some microsoft version wasn't it and it was crazy. yeah yeah and then francois Lionet, who was our guest this week he is behind stos amos and i remember i mean think of some games that were made on that valhalla that was made valhalla, valhalla series yeah, yeah a flight of the amazon queen as yeah, well that was a big one really good games and francois i mean he's actually going to be doing this is a bit of an exclusive on this show a new version of amos for the 21st century Oh, that's going to be interesting. And remember, he did Amos 3D as well. So yeah, all kinds it's, of it's stuff. not just 2D games on this. So we're going to find out the story of Stoss and Amos, some really interesting stories. Francois Liner is our guest on the Retro Hour in around 15 minutes from now. Now, let's get into this week's stories. This is quite interesting because, you know, obviously I did pick myself up a Sega 32X not long ago at Play in Blackpool. Courtesy of my uh, findings. Your eagle eye. My eagle eyes. There we go. I was like, findings. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a game that was released for it in very limited quantities. And some people mm. reckon this is actually the rarest 32X game because it's one of those very few games yeah. where you needed the Mega CD yeah. and the 32X to run. And this is a game called Surgical Strike. Only rich kids had it. Have you, have you played it before? No, never played it. I mean, as soon as you said, oh, there's been a re-release of one of the rarest 32X games, I straight away went to Spider-Man Web of Fire. Yeah. And then you mentioned that, and I was like, you know what? You know, that's I've heard that been thrown around quite a few times, but I've never actually seen footage of it or played it. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it enlightened me, Dan. <laughs> well, by the looks of it, I mean, I've never played this game either. I, I wasn't really all that clued up on the uh, Mega CD as a kid. Yeah. I mean, you know, Night Trap and all that, the yeah. games that everyone saw. Uh, but Surgical Strike, it turns out, it was actually released on the Mega CD as a standard edition. Okay. Uh, but also the 32X and Mega CD combination. Right. And there is a video on YouTube that kind of compares the two, and it's like an FMV game, like yeah. everything was back yeah. then. Uh, but the quality of it actually looks really good on the 32X version. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the, you know, looking at the footage of it, and really it it just looks like early PS1, you know, like mm-hmm. the intro to the video, like the polygon graphics on there would just, you know, kind of look like early PS1. But Whereas usually when you kind of look at the CD, you know, 32X games and CD games, uh, Sega CD games, they do look like just very crap, very blotchy and not on par with, you know, PS1 kind of thing. So it's quite impressive really to to know that's coming from a disc and a cartridge at the same time. It kind of reminds me of Command and Conquer look, you know, the military FMV. Yeah, yeah. Like intros, Kane's Wrath and all that. <laughs> so I wonder how much of this is actually rendered by the hardware and maybe like pre-rendered just, you know, streaming video. Yeah. Because I think the, the 32X could actually do much nicer quality and bigger resolution yeah. videos. So, yeah. I think, you know, interesting way around it. Yeah, it could be a case of they've got the FMVs playing from, you know, the digital side of it from the discs and then, you know, the actual gameplay maybe coming from the cartridge, I don't know. And but. they might have filmed it later as well, because we had the guy on from Night Trap, and he was saying, you know, that was a, a lot older title, so mm. converting that may yeah. have been a different quality compared to the yeah, later Yeah, absolutely, because Night Trap was actually made for, I forget the name of the system, but it was a videotape system in, like, 1989, wasn't yeah. it? So converting that, yeah, wouldn't have looked very good, so... Well, what's really weird about this is, I mean, I spotted this on Reddit, and it's on Atari Age forum as well, mm. and they're talking about the fact this game has been re-released... In limited quantities, in Brazil only. Now, obviously, Sega, you know, still got a really big following, hasn't it, in Brazil? Yeah, but I, I didn't think the CD systems would have a following. I thought it was more the cartridge kind of based ones, and just because everybody's got composite TVs there. <laughs> well, I'm looking here at this site, and you can order it. I mean, people can order it from anywhere in the world. Yeah. All you've got to do is transfer 59 99 US dollars to this PayPal address. And there's actually a few pictures of, like, the box they've printed up and a big stack of CDs. 
But the thing is, I mean, it's all a lot of it's kind of written in like Spanish. So mm. I'm looking at it and I'm like, you know, I can't really figure out exactly what's gone on. Portuguese if, it, if it's Brazilian. Portuguese, Sorry. okay. Apologies. <laughs> it's all right. um, but I'm looking at this and I'm like, is this an officially sanctioned product or is this a guy with a nice printer and he's doing some CDRs? Mm. Interesting, because obviously, I forget the name of the company, but there was a Brazilian company. Tech Toy. Tech yeah. Toys, yeah. that's yeah. it, that got all the rights to like Sega Mega Drive games. So it'd be interesting if it's got anything to do with Tech Toys, but by the sounds of things from what you've just said, it could genuinely be a guy with a nice printer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be that they don't have the rights in that country. It could be like, you know, he doesn't have universal rights to distribute it and just has the rights in Brazil. Yeah. So... What is quite interesting, though, maybe leans a bit more to that theory, is you can actually download the um, the ISO and the bin and Q file if you want to burn your own for oh, free. Okay, on this oh, okay. as well. So, I imagine if uh, you know if it was the original kind of team behind it trying to sell it physically, they probably wouldn't put it out yeah. for free. But yeah. you know, it's quite interesting. Whether someone will even bother to track that down all these years later, I'm not sure. But you know, if we find out any more about it, I thought it was quite cool that one of the you know the rarest game for the system, someone's actually give it the attention of putting it out again on a physical product. It's pretty interesting. So hardcore fan. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And talking about things from the past that have come back, now, I never thought I'd see this headline. Do you remember Thalamus? I do a bit, yeah, for the C64, but they did a few Amiga things as well. Yeah, they were a pretty famous company, you know, from the late 80s to the early 90s. I did stuff from the Commodore 64 and the Amiga mainly. Um, Hunter's Moon was one of their most famous games. And that was kind of, I mean, I actually had to re-familiarise myself with this. I remember a friend of mine had that when I was a kid. Mm. And it, it's a shoot 'em up game, but it's actually quite... It's a relaxing shoot 'em up game. A relaxing shoot 'em up game? How's that? It's just you kind of float along and you get these like, little cells of stars and you've got to go through black holes and stuff. Oh, okay. And it's actually it's got some pretty funky music and stuff. And they're quite an innovative company. You know, Rob Hubbard did a lot of the Commodore 64 oh, cool. um, soundtracks wow. on their games. Cool. And, um, you know, going a bit later on, there's stuff like Creatures and Creatures 2 on the Amiga yeah, and C64. Yeah, Creatures even got to the CD32 as well. I think, you know, that, that that was going till 94 or something with uh, the Amiga. Yeah, well, it was around that time, I think they went to about the mid-90s. Uh, also stuff like uh, Nobby the Aardvark, I'm sure that was one of your favourites, Revy. It sounds like an Otis rip-off, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Hawkeye, Delta, um, lots of games from back in the day. Venom Wing on the Amiga as well, they did. Now, the thing that's happened recently that's got everyone excited is, now it turns out Thalamus are back as a digital company. Oh, cool. So do you think they'll be... Visiting some old IPs or creating new ones. Lined up or well, there's a Kickstarter coming up. It's going to launch in October. Okay. Um, a Facebook page just kind of popped up randomly about yeah. a week ago. Yeah. And it's a little teaser trailer that came out on YouTube. Now, what they're going to be doing? I mean, there's an article here that um, Neil's put up on Indie Retro News, and it kind of expands it a little further. It turns out they've got plans to revisit a lot of these classic games. Mm. Hunter's Moon is going to be the first one that kind of relaxing shoot 'em up yeah, game I yeah. mentioned. And they're going to be doing a remastered edition of that for the 21st century. Now, the Kickstarter for that's going to launch on the 29th of September. But it turns out they've also got plans to do Kickstarters and revisit other games. But interestingly, you mentioned they're going to be doing platforms like the Spectrum Next. Going oh, to be putting cool. games out on that. And maybe some cartridges as well for the older machines. I just love that all these old companies are either coming back and like with, you know... Houston, for example, he's he's got his son running yeah. it. And, you know, it's like the legacy's still there and it's still in people's memories. Well, that's the thing, so I think there is, there's a certain time when you can do that, but long enough's got to have passed for people to be interested in it again. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there's, there's a point where it becomes legendary, you know, before it's nothing and then... 20 years later, it's legendary. <laughs> well, you know, the guy who's behind this is a guy called um, Andy Roberts. And hopefully we're going to have Andy on the show next week or the week after. Wicked. Um, we've set an interview up with him. And he's actually got a really interesting career, obviously at Thalamus back in the day as well. Um, he's also worked on stuff like, you know, Commodore Format magazine. He used to work on too, which was obviously, you know, legendary mag back then. Um, he worked at Sony, uh, you know, more recently than that too. And he's actually behind the Kickstarter to... Um, remaster a lot of these games on cartridge. Oh, great. We're going to get some tasty info there. Yeah, so uh, look out for that. And, you know, it's cool, cool to see a legendary company making a comeback again, isn't it? Definitely. So the more info we get, we'll keep you updated. I'm sure we'll get a lot more of Andy on uh, next week's show. And this is quite interesting. Do you remember Bubsy? Yeah, I like Bubsy. <clears throat> Everybody gives Bubsy a lot of hate, and I never had an issue with him. I had Bubsy 1 for the Mega Drive, and... You know, it was, I always remember it being a really, really difficult game. Yeah. Um, you know, one-hit kill and all that jazz. But, you know, I just kind of got on with it. You know, you just do your thing, you just play it, you get what you're given and get on with it. And, you know, he got a lot of hate for no reason. So is he back? He's back, is he? 
I don't even remember it. <laughs> well, it kind of got maybe a bit, a bit lost in that kind of slew of like animal inspired platform games that came dude out animals like awesome possum and you know the ripoffs of sonic yeah super frog on the amiga i remember zool as well cool yeah. spot i remember but, there to was be a... fair you know he was like a more of a standout one than some of the others you know obviously he was never sonic but i would say compared to some of the others he stood out a little bit more for me He'd always do these puns as well, wouldn't he? Like, yeah. You know, like, this is a catastrophe, <laughs> stuff like that. So, well, the reason we're mentioning it is um, Funstop Retro have actually done a little feature. It's called WTF Wednesday, say yeah. And they're looking at Bubsy 3D. Obviously, there was kind of that era when everything had to kind of change into 3D when yeah. the PS1 was yeah. set and that kind of came around. And I think there was um, Bubsy... I remember Bubsy on the Jaguar. Mm. And that was kind of an Alice in Wonderland-inspired game. Yeah, that was the one which was just on Mega Drive and SNES as well, like in true Jaguar fashion. But yeah, it was it's just kind of a a bizarre looking platformer, really, with no real sort of theme. It, like every single level is just something different. Like, but then obviously the transfer to 3D, Bubsy 3D has kind of got one of the. Uh, it's very notorious, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's called Forbidden Planet. Nice. So this came out in a 1996, mm. and they've kind of covered it because, I mean, obviously Bubsy, he hasn't got a good reputation no. in general for being, no. you know, that much of a good platforming character. But the 3D attempt really did kind of... Kill him. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> if you're looking at it, I mean, it was kind of typical of those <clears throat> early 3D games where they hadn't nailed the controls. Yeah. They had to try and put it into 3D. They yeah. didn't really know how to make that transition and make a platforming game. So, if, I mean, you've got to think, until like Mario 64, I was about, I was literally about to say it was pre-Mario 64. And Mario 64 really was just kind of like the blueprint of a good game. If you can nail the controls like these guys have and nail the camera then, you know, you're going to have a decent kind of 3D game. But before that, people were just kind of going in blind and just trying to work with something which had never really been done before and mm. failed miserably, unfortunately. And it had that problem with the camera as well that a yeah. lot of early 3D games did where the camera tried to follow you, but then it gets stuck behind a rock or, you know, yeah, you yeah. couldn't see what was going on. It was really weird. It was like this kind of sense that you have to release a new 3D version of yeah. an old title. You can't stick with 2D or you're going to be irrelevant. Exactly. And, you know, you look back now and there's quite a few highly regarded 2D games that kind of came out in the late 90s, but they're rare as hell. Like, you know, these are like the, you know, the top kind of like prized games because of nobody bought them and, you know, back in the day because mm. they're like, oh, 2D, that's nothing. Like, I remember being in the school ground and just being like, oh, yeah, this is 3D. And that kind of phase of like, you know, before I became a teenager, really thinking like 3D, all it was about was graphics. Yeah. Well, so many people felt the same. Being an Amiga fan, you know, we never got any of those 3D titles, but a lot of the ones went on to the PC. Yeah. So, like, Simon the Sorcerer, which was one of my favourite, favourite games, Simon 2 was just fantastic. That the talky mm. one as well. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Simon 3D, oh my God, it was just absolutely awful. Really? Well, speaking of Amiga ones, Lemmings, you remember Lemmings 3D? Oh, well, you had to rotate mm. that. Uh, why did they redesign it? Lemmings, you know, the one format that's successful. <laughs> and it's, it's strange, like, because now, with Sonic Mania, they're going back to 2D, yeah. and... You know, yeah, that, that was that that was kind of a false start with Sonic as well, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that's quite interesting that you'd bring that up because it's kind of like really in terms of 3D games, a lot of people they only you know, and even then, a few people debate it, but really, Sonic Adventure is really the only successful 3D Sonic game, whereas. With Mario, they don't really have to do that because they nailed it. So yeah, yeah. Well, in the next Mario game is going to be 3D, isn't it? You know, yeah. Odyssey. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the you know spiritual successor to um, Mario 64. Really looking at yeah. it. Yeah, that um, was such a leap, such a quick leap as well. Because mm. if you look at the time it took for Nintendo to go 3D with Mario, and the time it took them to go 3D with Sonic. Yeah, <laughs> it was like Sonic was twice or three times as long. Like 2001, it... I think, wasn't it? It came out. Yeah, yeah I mean, Sonic obviously Adventure. we got we got Sonic Jam, but that just had the kind of like the overworld game, which yeah, is in yeah. 3D. What was a racing one? Sonic R. Sonic as well. R. That yeah, was kind of yeah. 3D from the back, wasn't it? But it wasn't yeah. actually a proper Sonic. But Sonic game. Adventure, like you say, yeah, it's like was it 2001, 2000, yeah, 2001, something like that. Yeah, but it was like yeah, cause they tried with um, Sonic Extreme on the Saturn, wasn't it? And like yeah, which so, never you, saw you can see that, those on yeah, YouTube yeah. and stuff. But I remember, do you remember Flashback? 
Yeah. Yes. That was a great game. And they tried to do... Fade into... Is it Fade to Black. Fade to Black, yeah, yeah. The one that came out on the PS1. And like, I remember being really excited. Yeah. Because I love Flashback. Yeah. And Another World, I love that as well. And then when I played that, I was like, couldn't even get around the corner without dying. Yeah. Like, I remember playing the demo and you couldn't... You, literally, I was like, how do I sidestep around the corner? Like, <laughs> it was so bad. A r- Road Rash 3D, that was awful. Mm, they all had like thunder fires. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like giant bodies. You know what? We're sat here praising Nintendo, but Castlevania 64 was on the Nintendo and that was a flop yeah yeah. yeah. you know yeah. bad controls I mean I liked it I, I, get, I guess problem it, with it but <laughs> I guess it depends on the experience of the publishers yeah. with 3D yeah absolutely you know, a lot of the really failed ones were also guys yeah. that were really stuck in the 2D world mm. you know well obviously the thing that got us talking about this just then was Bubsy and um, this little trailer landed about six weeks ago Ooh. is that it landed world hunger <laughs> nuclear proliferation <laughs> reality TV None of those horrors compared to Yarn Ball Deprivation! Bubsy's back. Oh. I've been waiting to settle this score since 1993. <laughs> <laughs> now, to be fair, I mean, this got announced at E3, you know, back yeah. in uh, June. And it's called uh, Bubsy the Woolly Strike Back. And I think, I mean, looking at this, it's kind of, he's taken the mickey out of himself. Yeah. And the developers are. Everyone yeah. knows the reputation of it. But looking at that, I mean, it actually looks like it could be a pretty good game. Mm. If you check out this trailer, it's kind of, um, you know, 2D, kind of nicely rendered okay. from the side. Yeah. A bit like kind of Yoshi's Woolly World and that kind oh, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think this could actually work. But if you look at this, um, you know, the Funstock um, retro article I mentioned, <laughs> if you scroll down, there is possibly the greatest exchange this ever happened on Twitter. I saw you tweeted that earlier. That was quite good. So Bubsy's actually tweeted at Sonic the Hedgehog, <laughs> going, oh, sure, Sonic, now you return my phone calls. <laughs> Sonic replies, he goes, sweet sauce, is that really you? You're signing tweets like letters in the 90s. Yo, Mega Man, you need to see this. And they're all these characters like talking to each other on Twitter. It's That's like brilliant. You know, yeah, it's very bizarre. Bubsy and Sonic making a uh, Rick and Morty references. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very odd. But um, yeah, very I think, modern. <laughs> yeah, meta. I think they've yeah. described it as. Do, yeah. do you oh, think, sorry. Do you think they're going to go kind of the Conkers way with this, where Conkers was that cute character, and then they decided to make a game that was kind of totally taking a rip out of itself and going quite adult. Well, Bubsy was always a bit sarcastic, wasn't it? Yeah. He, he killed yeah. him and he'd like insult you or something. He was a little bit on the line anyway, c- yeah. considering it was like 93. So. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, looking I. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I think welcome back, Bubsy. All's forgiven. It's been long enough, surely. <laughs> let's, let's give him a second chance. Now, before we get into uh, Francois Lionette, um, the SNES Mini, a little bit of an update. Yeah. The um, user interface menus and more have now been revealed from uh, GameSpot, and Ooh. they've got this video. You've seen a few of these on YouTube, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. People have been getting their hands on these at like, reviews already. Yeah, I don't know. Like you see these people like holding the box and like, oh, the SNES Mini, and you kind of look through it, and it's like there's no actual content on the page. And then like earlier on, we were looking for an official release date, and it's like the top of it, it's like this is the official release date and then you look through the whole video and the whole you know all the article and there's nothing there yeah. like we're not really getting any more than what we got you know you know two months ago when it was initially announced in what was it June 26th yeah, well this article here and it's a video I mean it's by GameSpot so yeah. I, I assume this is legit and they're saying it's just over a month until the SNES Classic Edition will be out and I've heard that October 5th is apparently the Japanese release date for okay. the Mini Fan- Famicom um, but I mean the menus on it as you'd expect it kind of follows on from the the NES Mini. It looks very yeah. similar. It looks yeah. very Mario painty. Yeah. You know, you know <laughs> the right, actual yeah. menu system. The icons and yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. But again, it's just you scroll through all the games and stuff like that, mm. and they're all nicely presented as you'd expect. They've got nice music playing, and I think it's just kind of what I expected from it. Yeah. And you're excited to get yours, are you, Joe? Yeah. I mean, I'm. You know, to be fair, it's quite interesting because there's only a couple of games on there that I don't have already. Um, but I'm super excited for it. I mean, I never got the NES Mini. Um, I sat on that and then really regretted that. So mm. I made sure I didn't sit on the snares and got it straight away. So I'm super excited for it just to have that nice piece of hard retro hardware, and you know, and that, you know that nice box and mm. some actual controllers for it. So I'm super excited for it. But it's just very frustrating to be like, when is it actually coming? I've already paid for it. I want it now. Like, <laughs> I just want the Mega Drive, a decent Mega Drive. <laughs> yeah. Might be a while till we get one of them. Well, you never yeah. know that, you know, I took the, uh, the feedback on board that we were hearing about a couple of months ago now. Yeah, maybe. 
But what I think is cool is, I mean, you know, we've all got emulation packages and there are yeah. some really slick ones out there as well. But actually looking through just how nice this list looks and how well presented it is. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's so Nintendo looking It's at just that, a nice it? package, yeah. isn't it? And, you know, really like for just somebody who doesn't really know a lot about retro or whatever, if you just put that in front of them and just say, you know what, here's... 20 or so amazing retro SNES games. Knock yourself out. Yeah. Just hours of fun. And I'm sure they're going to crack it like the last one so you can have every single game on there. I remember Doom. they got Just up to Doom 100. <laughs> yeah, they got up to 100 games on the NES Mini. Really? So, I've heard, yeah. I mean, some people have been saying it's actually the same hardware as a NES Mini. Yeah, so they could probably yeah. just <laughs> crack the firmware <laughs> straight away. Yeah. 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 Probably logged out a bit more, I imagine, yeah. after that. But what do you think? N64 Mini next year is now? Oh, totally. Oh, and yeah. that, and the place that I'll get that, I'll get it. But... <laughs> yeah, it'll happen, it'll happen. Right then, guys, thank you so much for checking out episode number 86 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday. By the way, if you do listen on iTunes, um, please do keep you know, your five-star reviews. We're always... You know, appreciate it, aren't they? Just oh, definitely. <laughs> and on Stitcher and any other format, because uh, there's so many strange kind of podcast apps and stuff that wherever we are, we, we'd love reviews. Yeah, helps get us up the chart. Click that five-star button, or three, you know, if you're not feeling that generous. <laughs> it, all, it all helps. Yeah. So we'll be out again next Friday. You can get it from your favourite podcast client or our website, theretrohour.com. Uh, keep your emails coming in as well, show at theretrohour.com. And are you ready for this week's special guest? Totally. Let's get back to making those games on the Amiga and the Atari ST. I remember getting pretty much every version of Amos off, like, magazine cover discs. Yeah, and also every PD game I would ever buy for 50p in the back of a magazine would be Amos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some amazing stuff written with that. So let's find out the story. Francois Lionet is our special guest this week, and we'll see you next Friday. Ciao. Thanks for listening. listening to the retro hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest welcome to the show francois lionette how are you i'm very well thank you dan now great to have you joining us obviously we're going to get some uh, really interesting stories about amos and stoss you know those legendary uh, game programming languages that a load of our listeners will remember but i thought first of all it might be quite nice to get a bit of background on you i mean what was your first experience with a computer then? Where did it all begin? Do you remember the first time you used one? Yes, uh, I bought a Ohio Scientific Superboard 2, which was a main board with a keyboard and a cassette output and video output, so we were for quite a cheap price at the time. Uh, but the problem was that uh, this computer was uh, absolutely unknown in France, so uh, I had nothing uh, except the badly photocopied manual. I started to make games in basic, and then it was too slow. I made my uh, assembler, and then I programmed them in um, in machine language. So during my vet study, because I'm also uh, I've got a vet- veterinarian diploma, I uh, mostly did games <laughs> and uh, start selling them. And then at the end of my vet study, I just forgot everything about animals and I went into computing for as uh, my work. Well, let's go back a little bit and look at um, kind of when you were a child. Were you interested in like maths or languages and uh, structure of some <laughs> things? No, uh, I never understood anything uh, about in mathematics. So <laughs> I'm very bad at math. I'm quite good at phys- physics and uh, chemi- chemistry. The, the toy that I really thought I could uh, express myself was not a computer, of course. Uh, it was called Fischer Technics. Uh, it's a German uh, assembly uh, system that is miles better than Lego that are always hated because they always break. So for a kid that is like me uh, with uh, big gestures, <laughs> it's not fun to break. <laughs> So it was, uh, it was very well designed uh, with uh, engines, uh, mo- motors, uh, gears, and everything fit perfectly and it was stable. And I, could, uh, I created uh, so many stupid machines, like some, the machine that uh, pulls the, um, you know, the, the water uh, flush, push the fl- pull the flush in the toilets or distribute <laughs> soap, powder soap, or fill, fill up my glass of... Uh, my toothbrush with my toothbrush so uh, when i was in the shower it was 
slowly pouring into the glass, etc. You <laughs> <It laughs> automated your whole home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the problem is that I could, I didn't have in, enough parts to make several machines at the same time. So I should. I each time there was no backup, there was no cassette or the drive, so I had to dismantle them. So let's talk about games then. I mean, were you into like arcade games? Did you used to go to the arcades and play them? Yes, of course. Uh, I remember a Defender that I really loved. So yes, I yes I did. And uh, actually, my first game, uh, Driver, my first commercial game on the Auric One, uh, is a, an adaptation of a game that I saw at, at the at the fair. So what interested you in kind of creating games yourself? Did you used to draw them as a kid or, you know, have an idea of creating a board game or a, a computer game? I think that's what, what's, uh, what I dive into is programming. And I started by making games and it was fun as well. So, uh, and quite kind of challenging to, to create games because games are uh, a lot more difficult to, to do uh, than databases or accounting system you know games has to has to be the right speed with the right display and the right behavior and everything so it's more difficult so i, I always say that people can program games can program anything and uh, being sort of seen from above by serious programmers is kind of frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the Oracle One, and you know that was quite an interesting platform to um, to make games for. Why why the Oracle One then? Uh, because it was much more popular than the Spectrum. You you had the Spectrum in England, and we had the Oracle in in France. Looking at both machines, I think I did the right choice. Even if it was a small computer, it didn't look as cheap as the Spectrum. That's always the, been the thing that I uh, rejected in the ZX81. So yeah. I don't like this kind of look and the rubber. Yeah, coding on that keyboard wouldn't have been very nice, would it, on that Spectrum keyboard? No. <laughs> yeah, the, the recession machine. Um, <laughs> when you first started using BASIC, what, what did you think of it? Uh, well, uh, I liked it. It was very simple, but very slow. The, so, yeah. And basically, basically, uh, I uh, never knew any other language than, than basic. So it was my beginner's language, and that's it. Well, how did you start making games commercially then? How did it go from just making games at home to getting them actually published? Well, Driver was published, and uh, on the Auric one, it did 2,000 copies. Well, that was actually like a, a variant of Rally X, wasn't it? The Namco Arcade. That's it, yes. You've got uh, your, your cars are in a maze, and uh, you, when you want to make them stall, you, uh, you, you press fire, and it uh, leaves a cloud of smoke that disappears uh, after five seconds. And your goal as the player is to reach the four flags at the corners without being hit by the, by the cars. And you've got a small uh, map on the bottom right. Well, another game you did on the Auric 1, um, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's either Bomby X or Bomb YX. <laughs> yeah, oh, this one was a good one. It, it's actually in, in basic. Yeah. I did it in, in one week. Uh, it's a snake game. Yeah, so, a, an uh, early version of Snake. Yeah, but there was none on the... Uh, on the Oric at the time, so I did my version of Snake, which was quite playable, and sold the whole lot for, uh, I think it was 2,000 francs, which was uh, good money at the time for one week. And then obviously that game blew up when the, you know, the Nokia came out, didn't it, in the early 2000s, but <laughs> you were there 15 years earlier. Uh, you were also involved in um, Space Adventure Captain Blood, I hear it's a yes. forgotten oh, classic. Yes. Oh, so, yes, uh, and this is a good memory. Uh, so Captain Blood was quite uh, very was very very popular in France. I, I don't think it was as popular in England at the, at the time. You know, in certain countries, it was uh, the big success of the year for the IST. Yeah, that had some unique features as well. Like uh, it changes the player interface as the game progresses. Yes, and the language to talk with the alien based on icons is a very clever idea. Uh, so oh, it was a really cool game. And uh, it was made by uh, Philippe Ulrich, who was the scenarist, and Didier Bouchon, who was the programmer. Yves Lamoureux and I met with them. Uh, Yves Lamoureux was in charge of porting the CPC 464, and I was in charge of porting to the IBM PC and the Commodore 64. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we started the, the adaptation. It went quite okay. 
one day we there was the this uh, section of the game where you fly over fractal mountains until you reach the the end with the alien you start to discuss with and this we could not understand both Eve and I could not understand anything to his code it was uh, pure machine language and wow very difficult so uh, we have this reunion and he explains to us candidly I don't think I can explain it to you uh, I can't remember <laughs> So we had to start it from scratch. That really it pushed the boundaries less... of those machines. Oh, yeah. And I had to store data and program. Uh, you know, when you fly over the planet, you don't see the top and the bottom. You think it's just to do a cinema, cinema vision uh, panoramic uh, impression. But I do store a lot of the programming data above and under the screen. <laughs> well, you know, after that, um, the 16-bit machine started to arrive. What did you think of the Atari ST when you first saw it then? Uh, I hated Gem. Uh, first, first look, I hated it, even if it was the first graphical interface I saw. So it was not the correct one. I should have bought a Mac. I didn't like it very much. And the, the sound chip was cheap. You know, it was the same as the Oric one. Well, the keyboard was okay. The Well, it was 68,000, so still it was a good machine. And uh, it was kind of robust. And once you get used to the all the things that I've mentioned... <laughs> What ST games did you kind of like, or early software? I am a, uh, not a player at all, so <laughs> I haven't played anything, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, apart from uh, Super Mario <laughs> during the army <laughs> and Tetris. Everyone's played Tetris. Yeah. <laughs> well, where did the concept of STOS come from then? I mean, was there a need for an easier way for people to make ST games? So I was working at the time with a, group, a French group, you know, the creative kind of French thingy, uh, which I personally hate. <laughs> and the, it was called Jorks. Hmm. So uh, we wanted to do so. Uh, I made several games with them on the Commodore 64. And uh, we wanted to go on the Atari ST. And uh, we had this idea of replacing the system because actually we didn't like it. No one liked it. Uh, by DOS, so we're Black Window instead of Gem, which is, uh, when you think about it, it's stupid because even if it's, uh, it was um, not a real, really good one, it was a step in a good di- direction. So, yeah. Uh, and a basic. So, that as you had on the um, IBM PC, you had the DOS and the basic. So, we wanted to do both. <laughs> so, Stoss kind of came out of the fact that you just hated Gem so much that you wanted to replace it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. How did you end up finding a publisher then? Jacques and Frederick, uh, the members of the Jorks group, uh, were in charge of uh, finding uh, publishers. They found the, the first one with the French one called Cédric Nathan. It was this kind of big book publisher that uh, wanted to go into video games and did know, didn't know anything about video games. They knew about books, but uh, this kind, I, I had to deal with such company twice or three times. It was always the same. The box was ugly. There was no marketing at all. So we made, I think, 10 sales. And it, was, it also had the DOS inside, which was not a good idea. Because it confused, it was sold at uh, Stoss Basic, and the first thing you saw was a DOS window. Yes. Uh, and so uh, after this uh, brilliant success, uh, they took the Stoss, they took uh, Stoss uh, under their arm and went into England and did a tour of uh, several publishers. And uh, they arrived in Mandarin Software in Manchester, which is the initial publisher in, of, uh, of Stoss. And they do the demo. And Richard Vanner, my future project manager, and everyone said, wow, seeing a sprite moving under interruption. That's that's the story. And they want it, and they got rid of the dust and made, put some color. And um, and I think that you know that was probably a good decision as well, because I imagine if you just drop, dropped into DOS, it would have felt a bit like going back to the 8-bit days, wouldn't it, for many people? Yeah, and uh, I mean, it was total contradiction of... Uh, the simplicity of basic and the the complexity of a DOS command and scary also. So no, it was not at all good marketing. And they took the they had the right decision. Well, when they did start to market it properly, I mean, there were some really impressive uh, games that were showed to market Stoss, including there's like that breakout clone on the back of the box, and there was the the shoot 'em up game Zoltar and Bullet Train. I mean, were you looking for good examples of Stoss's power to show it off? Yeah, and it did work. Uh, they did a massive uh, uh, advertisement campaign before a show, 
that they were organizing because they also had shows. And stuff was to be revealed on this show. Uh, so uh, after the the revelation, I was I wasn't there, unfortunately. Uh, you could see some guys sat in the corridors or near the walls reading the stuff money. <laughs> nice. And I heard the um, kind of artwork changed on the box as well, and it got very eye-catching. How did that happen? Yeah, and it, it looks it looked young and uh, fun, so they, they spotted it absolutely perfectly right and put the right text behind, like not too much. And yeah, just a good good publisher is the key. Uh, all the chain of people is the key of a success of something. It's not on only the author. You know, I'm, I'm a small part of it <laughs> when you think about it. Especially back in those days when, you know, you bought all your software from a shop, it had to kind of leap off the shelf at you, I guess, didn't it? Oh, yeah, of course. And it was, uh, uh, Stuff was a difficult product to sell because uh, retailers, they are used to games and games they sell massive like, for one or two months and then the sales drop rapidly. So they're used to that. But Stuff is uh, totally another thing. It doesn't sell immediately. It did sell immediately strong, but after, drops to a certain stability and continues to say, uh, staying at that level. And then all the market, marketing uh, sales departments of, uh, at Europress Software, they had to relaunch the sales from time to time. So they would uh, have, each one of them would have 10 phone calls to do in the day. And these phone calls were to retailers, and they were asking if they had stuff basic. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I'm sure uh, everyone does it again uh, today as well. So what do you think it was that made stuff so special and well-received? Because it was a, actually, it was a toy designed for younger people. Well, it's not designed. Uh, it happened to be <laughs> to appear designed for younger people, so it was accessible with a very slow entrance to the learning curve and a not steady learning curve. And it was as well very deep uh, because this is what, always what I want in a, pro in a simple product is that you can use the product to create deep product with a simple interface or so simple instruction set. So yes, it was deep and uh, it, was, it was fun. I guess also it had a, a long life as well because you could keep creating a different game, a different game, you know, just use it. Whereas a, a normal computer game, you might play it once. Yes, it. it's a totally different experience. And um, I would have had the stuff for Amos when I was a kid. I was I'd have dive into it, you know, uh, I would have stayed on, stayed on it for weeks. As we did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, obviously the compiler came along and that must have been quite a breakthrough because that made programs a lot faster, didn't it? Yes, and it was really fun to make because when you create a compiler, I did without consulting any doc or anything, so as usual. But uh, so I had to discover all the steps myself. And uh, when you realize when you make a compiler that it's kind of uh, spreading your own code and uh, seeing exactly what you do and trying to optimize it the, the best way possible. So it was very fun. And why did you decide to make a version for the Amiga then? And how would, um, how would Amos differ to Stoss? Uh, it's your press who saw the sales of the Atari ST drop in England, as well as the sales of the Amiga quickly getting higher and higher. So uh, they asked me, uh, next, they told me the next version is going to be on the Amiga. That was their, their decision. So I got the Amiga. I had to do the, the port, but the display was uh, intrinsically dif different and the way it worked was different. So I, for, for example, I had to write the copper management. So the first thing I did was to write the screens and uh, I saw that on the Amiga you could overlap them. So I did it uh, in a... The way I wanted it, so and you know, taking small difference from the start for the, from the start. So I uh, we we did everything apart from some some of the core. Because Amiga Basic that was included wasn't very good, was it? No, oh no, it was it was absolutely awful. Dodgy deal with Microsoft there. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, Easy Amos and Amos Pro uh, came along after. Why do you think there was a need for different versions then? Well, Easy Amos was a proposition from uh, your press software, and they were absolutely right. So we took Amos, we added some color and uh, better graphics. We 
reduced the number of instructions and we created a specific example and a very good manual written by Mel Croucher uh, and uh, with a character that was explaining the, the, the language. And it was a big seller. And uh, I remember uh, the, the guy in the warehouse, each time I came in England, he told me that, oh, I'm, I'm Easy Amos, my little seller. I can remember that. <laughs> and um, Amos, uh, we wanted to, to do Amos Pro. I wanted to do Amos Pro because, uh, you know, I was not really satisfied with, uh, with Amos and there was some missing instruction, etc. So we started Amos Pro. Basically, uh, Amos Pro is uh, the pro is the big big mistake because uh, all, Amos doesn't have to do anything professional, so it should have been called uh, Amos Two or something like a revival mm -hmm. or something like that. But Amos Pro was certainly, I think, responsible uh, for less sales. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, because that was always a version that you know everybody wanted, but obviously it was the, the higher price version as well, wasn't it? Yes. Well, yes. We we don't remember how software was expensive at that uh, that time. And when you see that people hesitate to buy a $1 app on their phone, you know, yeah, it's a long way for software. <laughs> well, you know, around that time, obviously, you, you didn't develop STOS anymore. I mean, were people kind of upset about that or did people just kind of move on? Well, uh, if they were upset, I didn't know about. So certainly, um, they, <laughs> because they, if they told me, I would have uh, done a few things on the Italian. They didn't want Amos to be late, so... I knew that the sale were getting down, and that's it. It was uh, a product, and moved to the next. Were there any plans to do a PC or a Mac version? No. People in the in Europress office, Europress being the uh, second name of uh, Mandarin software. So people and the some people in the office were really not happy about not having a Amos on PC, and started uh, Libamba, uh, who was uh, who is a fabulous programmer. And a nice person. So he started pro to program uh, a basic on the PC called Dark Basic. So it was a hidden project that you're pressed so dark. And uh, it turned out to be really good. So he published it uh, with 3D instead of uh, just right. Um, and uh, so we started to release it at public domain. And then after, I think in 94, he created his own company with Richard Vanner, my uh, ex-project manager, so two ex-Amos persons. And uh, it was called uh, The Game Creators and sold Dark, Dark Basic. So it had quite a, quite a success and uh, they're still alive now and they are making really cool products. But it's good that the legacy of Amos was in there, though, I guess, in Dark Basic. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and uh, actually, I regret not not having done Amos. Oh uh, yeah, at the time I had problems with uh, my uh, jokes, friends. So. Well, even Amos 3D uh, was introduced, so you could do 3D games on a seven megahertz Amiga 500. Um, where did that idea come from? Because there was games like Castle Master at the time, I remember, and stuff like that. It's your press who uh, wanted this extension, but I didn't write it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, you know, uh, there was a Scar Star Glider demo and it was fun. Uh, and uh, I wonder what, uh, if you had that today, it would be, uh, Amos, Amos 3D would, would be fantastic with shaders and everything. So it would, would be cool. Yeah, it was revolutionary at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you also have uh, had Amos Maestro, which was a recording card and... You had some a few things. Well, how important was it writing and creating the kind of the creator's user guide? Because I remember that was like an essential resource for any user. Uh, it was. Uh, it was so important, and uh, the uh, Europress had real uh, authors uh, write write them. I actually did write the first manual of Stoss. Maybe that was why he also he failed. It failed. So. Uh, uh, so it was really good manual with the uh, exact index, no mistake, and step-by-step uh, step and all the instructions. So, yeah, was, uh, they did a really good job there. Well, I remember the legend that is uh, Mel Croucher actually wrote the Amos user guides. He wrote the Easy Amos. Easy user Amos, guide, yeah. Yes. How, how, did, how did that deal happen then? How did Mel get involved? Um, your press uh, had a few people 
to, to see and uh, they, they they chose uh, Mel and it was a good choice because he's uh, so talented. Uh, we were joking about this character for Easy Amos because when you look at it, it's him actually with the big moustache and uh, it, uh, it's a very good picture of him. <laughs> <laughs> Even had the little animation in the corner, I remember as well, you know, the flick animation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that was quite creative. Um, was the fact Amos didn't interface with the Amiga operating system, was it a bit of a disadvantage? Uh, I think so. I think that, uh, you know, I was nice to the Amiga. I didn't poke anywhere. I reserved my own memory and used the devices. But the the screens, I could not figure out how to do them inside of uh, the, the, the system using the normal copolist system. And actually, if I had read the doc, I could have done it. So, and it was more so easy for me to just to grab the copper, and it's it's mine. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking about that, I mean, was there anything about Amos or Stoss that you know, if you could go back in time, you'd do differently, or anything you didn't like that you always wanted to fix but never did? Oh yeah, for Stoss, uh, I would uh, remove the line numbers because Stoss were the line number basic. Oh. That was such a wrong choice. And in Amos, what? Oh, yeah, I would do it uh, using uh, respecting the system so that you could have a Stoss game in a real Amiga workbench screen, etc., or in a window. That's what I would do. What was the most impressive thing you've seen done with Amos? Uh, it was a friend of mine who did a complete theater system to print the ticket to make the counting to do everything with it and it has nice display of the theater where you could reserve the uh, the place etc it was installed in the theater yeah that was a whole front of house booking system (laughs) wow (laughs) that's amazing and uh demos there was the this demo group called syntax who was doing really cool things you know, it was, uh, it was fun. I remember those demos, actually. And, you know, when you looked at them, I thought they were made in machine code. Then I learned they were made in Amos. I was like, wow. Yeah. Uh, well, they do play a lot with the rainbows and the, <laughs> the copper list. So, yeah, it's easy demos. That's so cool. It proved that when people learned it, though, they could do some really powerful things with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, has every, it had everything. You know, it had a sprite editor. It had a sound editor. So you, you had all the tools necessary to create a game at your disposal. Often you'd see uh, tutorials, demo versions, kind of full releases on magazine cover discs of Amos. I think I I must have had about five copies of Amos at home. (laughs) Um, Did you have a good relationship with the magazines and uh, did giving away copies hurt sales? Oh, yeah. it's uh, Actually, I wrote a lot of articles uh, in that day during the period of Stoss and Amos. I remember one... Uh, for a period, I had like 20 pages to write every month. So but it was it was, it was good. So my art, uh, I was in relationship with a couple of French media ma- magazines. And my articles were translated by uh, your press and sent to the English papers as well. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, the magazines, even if they, uh, to have uh, the product on the on the cover, uh, first of all, your press only did that uh, at the end of the life of the Stoss and Amos. You do not get much per copy. I think it's ridiculous, like uh, 20p or so, something like that. But you you get massive number, like uh, 500,000. So it's not it's not a bad deal. Because I remember I got um, Amos on Amiga format on their cover disc, but I remember my mum then got me the manual and she got me the compiler afterwards. So I guess it sold more of those eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good technique. <laughs> yeah, not bad. <laughs> well, uh, a, a famous competitor to Amos came along, which was Blitz Basic in the uh, early 90s. Did you use it? And uh, what did you think of it? I used it. I discovered it, but I never used it, of course. Oh, come on. Yeah, ah, well, it was uh, German Qualität, uh, but I don't think the author is German, actually. But yeah, it uh, was very different. Well, have you played any of the, um, the famous Amos titles, like Flight of the Amazon Queen, there's Valhalla, and uh, Scorched Tanks, it was actually the inspiration for the, the Worms series. They're all made in Amos. Have you seen any of those? Uh, yes, it was an, uh, an Amos program. So that's really cool. Uh, I haven't seen the... I've got links now to uh, the three first you, uh, you just talked about. And uh, no, I haven't played with them. You know, I'm not a player. 
I'm sure you'll be impressed when you see them, though. I think Valhalla even had, like, full talking and stuff in it as well. Yeah. The wow. samples, yeah, it was groundbreaking for the time. Yes, and it's, it's so cool to see that, uh, you know, your code is used to create other things. It's so, uh, it's really great. And I'm very happy when when I see something good made made with that. It's, yeah, it means that people have understood what I want, what I've written. So it's so good. Well, in 2001, you released the source code for Star Sand Amos. Um, why did you do this? Because, it, uh, you know, some people were asking for it, and I didn't care about this code being uh, public, and people could do whatever they want with it or just have a look at it and say, oh, my God, I can't believe it worked. <laughs> this kind of, I don't care. So have you still got the source code for uh, Easy Amos and Pro and, and any plans to release them at any point? Um, I, uh, the source code, I don't have them anymore. Uh, they used to be on an optical, a mega optical disc and I, uh, it broke and I got rid of it. So no, I don't have the source code anymore. Oh, it's gone. Mm. But it was very, very similar. You know, Easy Amos was very similar to the code. Mike, on my part, it was very similar to the code of Amos. So do you still get any messages from people saying like, hey, I'm using Stars or Amos? Yes, yes. And uh, about every 10 days, uh, I get someone who contacts me, seen me on Facebook. And uh, usually they say thank you because they really enjoyed the Amos when they were younger. And uh, they have chosen uh, to be to work in IT and they thank me for that. So and I ask them, uh, are you happy at least? And say yes, more, uh, all the time. So um, it makes me feel proud and I'm happy for them. Well, obviously, uh, you founded Click Team uh, back in the 90s as well. And, um, you know, you've continued this effort of helping people create, um, you know, games creation tools. Even that, tell us a bit about Multimedia Fusion then. What, what is that? So uh, after, uh, I will have to, I have to go back to 93. Uh, after uh, Amos Pro Compiler, was out, uh, we wanted to go to the PC market. And I didn't want to continue on Amos because I had problem with jokes. No, this is, uh, this is why. So we, we had to do something different that was not a language as well. I thought that at the time that the PC user were less code type or programmer type than uh, other computers. Well, certainly I was right because it was more mainstream with Windows, etc. I called Yves Lamoureux, who I worked with on Captain Blood, uh, like seven years after, before that, uh, and asked him to come and help me do a PC game maker. And we had this brainstorming session in the uh, first floor of my, of my wife's uh, vet's clinic, because I married a vet. In uh, half a day, we designed Click and Play, uh, which was the first visual programming language uh, made like an Excel sheet where you've got the conditions and actions. Uh, all graphical that uh, enable anyone to create games. Uh, so it was a big success. Uh, Click and Play has been translated into 20 languages and sold in the USA by Maxis, uh, the makers of uh, SimCity and The Sims, but they were independent at the, at the time. And I met them, you know, they're fantastic people. So yeah, Click and Play was a success. So after that, we did the Game Factory, then after, it's, I think on 90, in 97, we did Multimedia Fusion, mm -hmm. which was uh, more, more stable and more integrated in the system with a good interface. And in 99, I created uh, with uh, Yves Lamoureux, Click Team, who is still alive today. And uh, we carried on on uh, Fusion uh, up to three years ago when uh, Click Team Fusion was released and it's the new product which has got uh, cool things like uh, um, physics engine and nice stuff in it. I was going to say something, you know, some interesting stuff come out of the Click Team engines, even uh, Five Night at Freddy's series was made on that, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, I discussed actually with uh, Scott uh, Colton, the, the author, it's a really fantastic guy. And, you know, he was making um, Christian games. He's, he's very uh, believer. And he was making Christian game in his room uh, and they were not selling. So he wanted to, to change radically. <laughs> That's quite a and change. <laughs> he made, <laughs> so, and he made uh, Five Nights at Freddy's and it was a massive hit. Uh, I remember to seeing in, um, in a website where you see the number of uh, sales and uh, the Five Nights at Freddy's uh, on iOS 
and Android were number one of the paid game, so not the free game, but the paid game, so uh, during two months in a row. Wow. <laughs> and even like PewDiePie and people like that I've seen on YouTube, are, you know, playing them as well. So, yeah. It's oh, it's very scary. You, yeah. <laughs> uh, Someone made me discover it uh, at night with uh, uh, headphones. I mean, yes, it is scary. <laughs> it's, I think it's an ideal game for that kind of Twitch audience that are watching when you're live streaming because the guy playing it or the girl will just get really scared and then all the audience get involved and you know and it and it builds up the panic it's very good and the soundtrack is so good mm, yeah well also i mean you know francois you and i working together now um friend what are you doing there at the moment we, we had a discussion the other day about your, your vision for the future where nobody uses passwords and uh you know like a computer grows with you you've got you've got quite a vision haven't you Yes, and this vision, I had it immediately after discovering Friend. And, I mean, it's obvious if you've got a machine that is on servers, it never stops running. And it's eternal. There's, uh, you know, the, they will change the server, put your machine on the new server, and that's it. You've got your same machine, but it's on your hardware, so hardware, and that's it. You don't have to know. I'll just mention to our listeners what Friend actually is. It's a, it's a cloud-based operating system. Yes, so for the first time, you can have uh, Windows or uh, Mac, uh, Mac OS in your browser uh, with icons and windows and applications and everything. Will we be seeing Amos on a friend as well? Yes, you will. Uh, because I'm uh, porting Amos in uh, JavaScript uh, using uh, Canvas so to create games with it. And um, it will be integrated in our in Friends development environment, which is called Friend Create. So you'll be able to write basic program under a friend machine. And that's that's quite okay. I imagine a lot of people that used to use Amos back in the day will want to try that out. Oh, yeah. And I, I wish uh, I wish a lot of people will, will discover what's behind it. Uh, not only Amos, but discover the friend machine behind that would be, that's also, you know, getting loaded to export the vision and everything. Because I've done a bit of coding using FriendCreate and it's it's very good. It's got, um, you know, a lot of support for total different languages, PHP and, you know, C and everything in there. So having Amos <laughs> alongside that, it just adds to the club. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but uh, what, what is cool is that Amos is going to be uh, just another language uh, available for you to choose. And I don't see now if Amos is stable, if it respects the machine, why it, it's, you can create professional application with it and or 3D games if there is a name of 3D ported. So, yeah, it's, a, it's another language. It's a game engine. What's the thing? Because it was a very good basic. I mean, you know, if you want a basic interpreter, it's, it's a good choice. Yes. And, uh, you know, people who I'm sure that basic is, uh, is going to come back because uh, when people realize that to do, uh, you know, every, everyone when he does his first program is hello, hello world. So in order to do uh, hello world in basic, it's uh, very complicated. Print hello world. And <laughs> if you want to do that under using Windows API or my, even Mac OS, uh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you can do 20 go to 10 as well in basic, which is always fun. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, but now you don't need the big machine. You just need the browser. That's it. Yes. And that's, that's the, the power of the thing. Well, if people want to try um, it out, obviously we'll, we'll put a link in our show notes as well to friends so uh, people can see your, your current work on there. Uh, Francois, it's been amazing, you know, getting your stories. And it's really good that, you know, even after all these years, you've still got a passion for helping people create software and games. So, um, best of luck and do keep us updated on what's happening. Oh, yes, I will, for sure. And you can go also, we have a Facebook group. Uh, it's called Amos Professional. So any, everyone is welcome and uh, I will expose the progression of uh, the conversion of Amos into JavaScript there and you can post any, any question you, uh, you want. Excellent. We'll put that in our show notes as well so people can find it. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you then, Francois. That was fascinating. Thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> De rien. <laughs> Thank you very, very much as well.